Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 18, if you're not already there, and we're going to be reading at uh, verse 24. Uh, If you have one of our uh, uh, loaner Bibles from the back, it's going to be page 541. You can Acts, the books of Acts is towards the right side of of the Bible, but page 541 is probably the, the best instruction I can give you to help you to get there. So, Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just ask that you would um, speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts. We've, we've all come into this room tonight from different circumstances and situations in our lives. Some of us would consider ourselves Christians. Some of us wouldn't. Some of us are curious about who Jesus is. Some of us honestly may not be. But that's okay. Jesus, we just ask that you'd reveal yourself to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive. Give us minds to process. And Lord, may we, through this time together, because your Holy Spirit is at work, may we be drawn closer in relationship with you. So Jesus, thank you for your presence. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if your boss were to tell you to show up to work and, and you didn't actually do anything to make that happen, like you didn't set your alarm clock, you didn't roll out of bed, you didn't get your morning coffee, which most of us are dependent on, you didn't jump in your car and make your way to work, if you didn't make any effort at all to head out to work, it probably wouldn't happen. Now. You might not have purposely decided to ignore your boss. Maybe you're thinking, well, I I heard what he said, but I'm not sure if he actually meant I have to show up. Maybe he was just thinking out loud, or maybe it was just a suggestion. And, you know, I'm open to the idea of going to work, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll go, (laughs) maybe I won't. How do you think that would go over? Probably not very well. And for any of you that employ other people in this room, I'm sure you would agree that it wouldn't go well for your employees if that took place. So what's interesting is that we as Christians sort of have that same kind of disconnect to some of the things that Jesus calls us to. We wouldn't think of doing it in a work environment. We would universally agree that that would be a bad move to just ignore what our boss is telling us to do. But sometimes within the Christian world somehow, within the Christian subculture, within the Christian church, we take the the instructions and the admonitions and the exhortations of Jesus and we sort of intellectually agree with them, especially if we know who Jesus is and we consider ourselves a, a follower of him, but we actually don't follow him in his teachings. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we lose sight of that stuff. Sometimes we have a failure to, to connect the dots in some of these things. And so... Um, as it relates to Jesus, there are things that he's calling us to. 
And specifically, what I want to talk about tonight is how Jesus has very, very carefully, very explicitly, very obviously called us to the ministry of discipleship. He's called us to make disciples. That's what discipleship is. And uh, this is a major emphasis of the church, and we talk about it a lot, and I want to talk about it again tonight, if that's okay. But sort of, I don't know any Christian who disagrees with the idea of discipleship or any Christian who disagrees with the idea of making disciples. Yet, though there isn't any disagreement on that and no one really fights that idea or that concept, we don't see this universal sort of acceptance that, yes, we're going to take our our marching orders from Jesus and we're going to walk forward in this. It doesn't always look like that. And I have to confess that um, I, I share in the blame, and I have, to, I have to take on my share of blame in this, not only as an individual Christian, just a guy who knows Jesus and is in a relationship with Jesus, and my failure in my life throughout my Christian life to proactively and actively um, invest in people in making disciples, which is to help people to know, love, and follow Jesus, but even as a pastor. And it's actually something that comes up a lot because I, as part of a church that is so Um, emphasizing strongly this idea of discipleship and helping people to know, love, and follow Jesus, the more we talk about it and the more I think about it, the more I think about some of my own failures to do so in my ministry history. And so uh, I'm not pointing the finger of blaming anyone anyone else for that any more than I'm blaming myself. I think this is just a a recognition of of sort of our, our human tendency and how we sort of, especially as it relates to God, we sometimes tend to compartmentalize how we're gonna live for God. Yes, we will we will take to heart these instructions and we'll take to heart those instructions, but these over here we'll kind of push to the side and and we almost act like, you know, these were just suggestions and not something that God was actually calling us to. It's interesting when you look at Barna Research, they've done massive uh, research in this area, and what they have found is that only 20% of Christian adults are involved in some sort of discipleship activity, only 20%. And so thankfully, here at Collective Church, our percentages are much higher than that. We actually have, last time I checked, over 70% of our church community is involved in active discipleship. Um, But that doesn't mean our work is done. That doesn't mean that we can just close up shop and be done, but because the work of discipleship and the calling of God upon our lives to invest in people's lives, acknowledging them as made in the image of God, recognizing that God loves them and is calling them into a relationship with himself, and it's relationship with with him that is to be one of intimacy, not just where they sort of get their foot in the door, so to speak, but where they are growing in their relationship with him. This is to be an ongoing thing. And while our church, and I'm very happy and thankful to be able to recognize this and acknowledge this and talk about this, while this isn't a problem in our church, um, it's a problem across the board. And I will actually say, just to make sure that we don't get our heads too big about this stuff, it's not uncommon for a newer church to have higher levels of engagement. And so we've been a church for about a year and a half. It's not totally uncommon for us to have such high levels of engagement in that way. So in part, what I wanted to do tonight is reaffirm why this is important. I I want us to consider how we engage with one another in discipling one another and discipling other people. But I also hope that it serves as a warning for our future because there's going to come a time where the buzz of being a newer church plant isn't something that motivates us anymore. And like so many other aspects of our life, laziness and complacency can set in. 
And so I want us to pay attention to some of this stuff, and that's why we're going to be looking at this tonight. The reality is, and I've already referenced it, but Jesus has commissioned us and called us his followers, you and me, that's if, if we are following Jesus, God has called us and he has commissioned us to make disciples. We see that in Matthew chapter 28, something that, is, that has actually been referred to as the Great Commission. Matthew 28 reads like this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this is something that is to be happening on an ongoing basis with us. So as I mentioned, in a nutshell, discipleship is helping people to grow in their relationship with Jesus or helping people to, to know, love, and live for Jesus. Um, and it's, it's as followers of Jesus, it's really about just coming alongside others, helping them to follow Jesus. So we are very thankful as a church community that the church that has been established here now is very much a collective church. Yes, that's, that's, our, that's our name, um, but we're very thankful that we look around and we see the levels of engagement that we do see, and we, we're very thankful for that. We're very thankful for those of you, some of you did it tonight, the ways that you serve. You look around and you see yellow lanyards. Those are the people that are serving in some capacity today. There are others that as you look around that aren't wearing yellow lanyards, and it's possible that they might be serving next Sunday. We have a lot of people, a very high percentage of our people that are serving in some capacity here at Collective Church. We're extremely thankful for that. But what I want to present to you and what I want to suggest to you, and, and first of all, I'd say, like, please keep that up. Thank you for the ways that you guys are contributing, the way you're giving of your time, your energies, your skills, your abilities, even the way that you give financially. Thank you so much for that. It helps our church to thrive. It helps our church to be a healthy community. And so I say, please keep that up. But... I would suggest to you that quite possibly the most important thing that you can do, the most important way that you can contribute to the collective church community and participate in what God is doing here is through discipleship. It's through making disciples. Now, that's not a sales pitch. That's not the catch. It's really an encouragement to you, and it's really an incredible calling that God has, been, that, that God has given to you to be involved and to be engaged in this, in this way. And so when we look at our text, what we see happening here is that Priscilla and Aquila and, and, and Apollos, their, their lives are intersecting here. And what I see taking place here, I would describe as discipleship. So first, let's take a look at Apollos and find out who he is and what his deal is. Uh, the text reveals that he was Jewish. He was from Alexandria, which was a, a great intellectual center in that time. And this is where the Hebrew scriptures referred to, we know them as the Septuagint, were translated into Greek. He's described as being eloquent, so he's a great speaker. He could hold a crowd in the palm of his hand when he opened up his mouth to speak. Um, he's described as being competent in the scriptures. So this would be, you know, keep in mind, we're reading Acts, which is part of the New Testament. When it says that he was competent in the scriptures, it wasn't in the New Testament. It would have, it would have been in reference to the Old Testament, which would have been the, the Old Testament writings that, that spoke of the coming Messiah. One translation actually describes Apollos as not just being competent in the scriptures, but actually mighty in the scriptures. We also know that he was very, very well educated and very well trained. He's described as being fervent in spirit. But, there was a but. It's one of those 
good news, bad news scenarios. The good news is that what he knows about Jesus, he, he explains and he teaches very well. That's the good news. The bad news is that his theology, his understanding of God was incomplete and was deficient in some way. So what he knew, he knew well, was able to relate it to people. But what Paul, or sorry, what a, what uh, Priscilla and Aquila are recognizing here is that there's a there's a, there's something that's missing. And we see that what the problem is here in verse 25. It gives a hint of what that is because as you read this text, you get the idea that he's kind of a stud and he's got it all figured out. But then it says here he only knew the baptism of John. It says there in verse 25, and then uh, Aquila and Priscilla have to pull him aside. And so what does this mean, the baptism of John? This is a reference to someone known in the New Testament as John the Baptist. And he, he was uh, considered the forerunner of Jesus. He was actually the cousin of Jesus as well. And he called people to repent and to accept the, and anticipate the coming Messiah. He baptized people as a sign of repentance, demonstrating a recognition of sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow, God, to follow God's law in anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. So John the Baptist's baptism was a symbolic representation of a person changing their mind and going in a new direction. It's like, okay, I'm gonna, I recognize that there's these shortcomings, shortcomings in my life and I wanna put that stuff aside and I wanna go in a new direction. Now, our, our text does not reveal in what way um, Apollos' teaching and ministry or his understanding of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus was incomplete or deficient. The text doesn't actually reveal that and so um, it, it's hard to sort of really drill down and truly to, to, to get into that and to discern that, but we know the ministry of John the Baptist. We understand that. And so as this comparison is being made, we realize what, what might be part of the problem. And we know that the ministry of John the Baptist was pre-Jesus or was before the ministry of Jesus. And, uh, and clearly there was something in, in Apollos' teaching that was lacking. And so Priscilla and Aquila recognize this and it prompts them to get involved. Now Priscilla and Aquila, it's a married couple and they were followers of Jesus. Uh, we, uh, even in a couple weeks ago, we sort of saw them come into the narrative where Paul rolls into town and he meets up with them and he connects with them and they would become great supports and great friends to his ministry. And here they're in the text again and, and we're seeing this narrative unfold here. But they were followers of Jesus and this married couple together, they pull Apollos aside and they help him out and explain the text reveals in verse 26 the way of God more accurately. So there's something that he was missing. Now, notice in the way that they reach out to Apollos. They didn't publicly call him out and embarrass him. They didn't write a blog post about him. They didn't protest on the street corner with signs, you know, outside of where he was speaking. They didn't make a, a big scene at all, but they reached out to him and they just pull him aside. And we can, we can assume that they did so with love and, and um, with grace and in the spirit of friendship. And, and, and it, this was really kind of a divine appointment almost because um, it, it just so happened that Aquila and Priscilla uh, ran a very successful nonprofit organization specializing in discipleship and they are very prominent leaders in the church. I'm kidding, none of that is true. <laughs> none of that is true. They were just regular people. They were just regular people. So we, we, the text does not tell us 
And we never find out that they were prominent leaders, that they had special skills and abilities, or, or they, they, they had any special office or position in the church at all. They're just regular people. And they see an opportunity to minister to someone whose th- theology was incomplete, which would have interfered with his understanding of his own relationship with God to whatever degree he had one, and saw this as an opportunity to, to, to strengthen him. They were just regular people. So what we see going on here with Priscilla and Aquila as their lives intersect with Apollos is a picture of discipleship, people investing in others to help them know, love, and live for Jesus. It's really a beautiful thing taking place here. I remember um, one of the times, it's happened several times, uh, I remember one of the times this happened to me. It, happens, it has happened to me a lot uh, because I don't have everything figured out. Most of the time it's Pastor Casey that does it. Um, but I remember one of the times, and, and this stands out in my mind because it was one of the most vivid times this took place. And I think it matches this story and this, this account here in our text well. I was a relatively new believer, and I was hanging out with a bunch of buddies, and um, Somehow the conversation turned to money and giving to the church that we were a part of at that time. And uh, I was in a situation where my own personal finances were a complete mess. Some of you know I've had health problems and I've had them for years. And so even way back then, I had tons of medical debt. And I was trying as best I could to put as much money as I possibly could towards this debt to knock down that debt because I was driven by the sense that this is what a man of character and integrity would, integrity would do. It's the right thing to do. It's a way that I can honor God by paying off my debt and paying what I owe. And as I was sharing this, I'm saying, you know, here's my situation. And because of that, I don't actually give anything to the church. I don't give anything to Jesus. I don't participate in God's work in the world in any way financially. And one of my buddies was a faithful friend in that moment. And he said, yeah, but have you ever considered that if it weren't for Jesus, you wouldn't have any money to pay your debt? And I was like, no, I have not considered that. (laughs) But he was so right. And I was so thankful for that moment because you know what? I was trying to live for Jesus. I was trying to do the right thing. My heart was right, my intentions were good, but my actions were wrong. My actions were misguided. I was ignorant in the very literal definition of the word. I was ignorant, I was unaware of what obedience looked like in that area of my life. And I was thankful that my friend was faithful enough to to point that out to me, to give me an opportunity to walk in obedience. To give me a chance to to participate in God's work in the world by investing in it financially and the multiple other benefits that are associated with that where it's this matter of, of learning to reflect the character and heart of God and his generous nature and the fact that I was able to worship him in that way and the way that um, I was able to sort of like just acknowledge the many ways that he has blessed my life. And by giving up it back to him, it's, it's a way of stating, you know, you've blessed me with so much, I recognize that and I give some back to you. And so that was a way that I had been called out in my past. It was a way that I had been discipled, and it forever changed my perspective of money. It forever per- changed my perspective of giving and involve, in getting involved financially in God's work in the world. He helped me. My friend helped me to participate in God's work in the world, and it, and it really was a milestone in my own Christian walk. He filled in a gap of my understanding, and that is what's happening here with Aquila and Priscilla as it relates to Apollos. Now, it doesn't always look that way. It doesn't always look like gentle correction. 
Um, sometimes it, it, it involves teaching, sometimes it involves exhortation, other times, um, sometimes it can be a bit confrontational, but it doesn't have to be. Um, sometimes it involves accountability. And sometimes we hear the word accountability and we're like, I don't like accountability. It's kind of a gross word. We tend to associate it with negative experiences and confrontations and you know, interventions and things like that. And, um, but I, I, to be honest, I, I really think that account of accountability and true accountability and true biblical accountability is often misunderstood and gets a bad rap. We tend to view it in, in a negative way, seeing it as an unpleasant experience where we're busting one another's chops and all of that. But I would say that accountability is not just about keeping people from what is wrong and bad. Accountability is not just keeping people from what is wrong or bad. It also involves pushing people to what is right and good. And that's what my friends did to, with me, and that's what we see happening here in our text. And so obviously, our text reveals that Priscilla and Aquila's investment in Apollos paid off nicely because the text goes on to talk about um, how uh, fruitful Apollos' ministry ended up becoming. And years later, we see recorded in Scripture that his ministry was so effective and his ministry was so fruitful that actually factions and camps started to form within the, within, among the believers about who was their favorite Christian celebrity. You know, I'm of Paul, I am of, I am of Paulus, and people were sort of competing as if they weren't on the same team. And that's all weird and all that kind of stuff, but at least it shows us how effective and how fruitful um, Apollos' ministry was. And we have Priscilla and Aquila to thank, for that, to thank for that because they invested in him. This is the kind of result that can come about when we invest in people. You know, my own father, he is a Christian, been a Christian ever since I was born, actually. You know, the whole life, death, and universal experience made him like, what, Jesus, what's going on? And he became a Christian. And my whole life, my dad had this passion to be a missionary. He wanted to be called by God to go wherever to serve Jesus and to tell people about Jesus. And he wanted to go to some foreign land, and he prayed his face off that God would call him to be able to do that. And God never called him to do that. So my dad shifted gears and he, and he realized that, wait, there's a different way that I can have a spiritual impact in the foreign mission field by praying for people, supporting people financially to be able to go, those that did have the calling, and at times even going on short-term trips himself to come alongside other people who were called in a more long-term sense to, to serve them and to love them. So, you know, we have, sometimes we, we sort of glamorize certain roles in ministry in ways that God can use us, but we should not neglect and look down upon the, the, the seemingly smaller and more subtle ways that God can use us in other people's lives. I don't think Aquila and Priscilla had any idea the kind of minister that Apollos would become at the time that they pull him aside and they help him to understand the way of God more accurately, yet they invest in him and they got to share in his ministry through that. I recently had the opportunity to encourage, uh, to encourage someone and thank someone who has been a part of our church. They're actually not a part of our church anymore because they moved away, but I was able to thank them um, for the way that they had invested in a friend of theirs, who I am seeing, it's so great to watch this person growing spiritually. And it's all because they reached out 
to, to serve their friend and to come alongside them and help them to understand what a relationship with Jesus is all about. And now this person has taken steps to continue to follow Jesus. They've been baptized. They're engaged like never before. They've actually become a mission member here at the church, and they're fully engaged in what we're doing together. And it's beautiful to see. And it all goes back to that person. And I was able to connect with them recently and say, thank you for that. I don't know if you're aware, but this is the impact you've had. And you've moved on with your life and you live in a different city now, but the impact that you made is still sending ripples back here in Los Angeles. Discipleship has been a major uh, emphasis here at Collective Church since day one. And in the earliest stages of planning this church, we committed to be a church that would practice intentional discipleship. We decided we have to be about that. And I don't have, to, I don't have time to get into it, but it runs deep. Virtually everything we do, literally, uh, this, this, this drive, this intentional drive to see people discipled and to know what a relationship with Jesus is all about and to strengthen them in that literally affects everything we do. It even affects what we don't do. Because if it's not linked to helping people grow in the relationship with Jesus, we don't do it, because that is our calling. That's what we've been commissioned to do. And so discipleship is not just the flavor of collective church. It's not just kind of one of those things that we're about. Like, you know, like there's many successful companies and, and, and you could Google uh, a successful company and sort of look up their core values, right, of what might make them successful. And their so-called core values may have some similarities, they might have some differences. I want you to know that us, emphasizing discipleship, it's not like that. It's not just like, okay, I'll take, some of, I'll take this core value and I'll take that core value and that's what we're gonna be about. It's not about that for us. It's not just the flavor of our church or our adopted core values. It's very deeply rooted in what God is calling us to do. It's very deeply rooted in the work that God commissioned to do. It has everything to do with God's church. It is the work that Jesus gave his church. It's the work that he's called us to do. And if the work of the church involves making disciples, we need to know what the church is all about. If the work of the church is to make disciples, we need to understand what the church is all about, the nature of the church, so we can understand the context for discipleship. Collective church does not make disciples as an organization. Collective church makes disciples as a community of disciple makers. Because the church is not a place where, but a people who, thank you for the regulars who filled in the gap there. The church is not an organization. It's not a building. It's people. So, the, so we, as Collective Church, do not make disciples, I'm going to repeat this, as an organization, we make disciples as a community of disciple makers. That is what God has called us to do. Ultimately, we need to recognize that this is the normal work of every believer. We don't always look at it that way. We don't always think of it in those terms, but it's the normal work of every believer. It's not the work of the spiritually elite. It's not the work for people that have taken a fancy online certification course or a special 12-week class or someone who's on staff at a church or someone who has an impressive title or fancy initials after their name. It's really everyone's job. I would want to be able to ask you and just say out loud, everyone in this room who was a disciple maker Please stand up. Now, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
But I would want to say that, and biblically speaking, everyone should stand up if they know Jesus. At our gatherings, we always have people here who don't know Jesus. That's why I don't want you to stand up. I don't want to make anyone feel weird. But really, if we, if we are Christian, there's no separation between a Christian and a disciple. If you look at Scripture, the very first time the word Christian is used, it's used to describe disciples. The disciples were first called Christians, it says, in a certain place. And it was used as a sort of a derogatory term. But we are disciples. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus commissioned his followers, his disciples, to make disciples. So if we are Christians, we should also consider ourselves disciples. And as Christian disciples, as followers of Jesus, we are all then called and commissioned to be making disciples. Making disciples is not just an opportunity for every believer. It's the responsibility of every believer. It's not just the opportunity that we have, it's the responsibility that we have. I want you to take inventory of your life. I want you to think, who am I discipling? And what that means, again, in the simplest of terms, let's not overthink it, it just means, who am I encouraging in the faith? Who am I spending time with to help them know love and, know love and live for Jesus more? Of course, in our context, we tried to provide an opportunity through, that, through our discipleship approach, which was explained earlier by Gretchen. That's what we should be thinking about. Because God wasn't making a suggestion when we were commissioned to do this. He wasn't just throwing it out there as a possibility. And here's why. God wants people to come into a relationship with him. It's not, okay, well, if you follow me, then I got some work for you, and I'll let you do this. No, God desperately wants us to have a relationship with him. And so he commissions the church, and he's saying, essentially, I love people. I created them in my image, and I want them to have a relationship with me, and I'm choosing, even though I don't need you, I'm choosing to use you as a, as a vessel, as an instrument, so that people can come into a relationship with me. When we talk about discipleship, we should understand it as it being the call of a God who loves us desperately. That's what it's about. When we talk about discipleship, it, it should draw, we should draw a straight line between, between that call to make disciples and how much God loves us. We should be able to draw a straight line between God's desire to, to work in us and to use us to participate in his work in the world. Discipleship has everything to do with God's heart for the world. That's why it's important. And so Priscilla and Aquila they see this opportunity to disciple Apollos, and they take responsibility to do it. And like I said, this has been a major emphasis of ours since, since day one, and we understood the necessity of intentionality in that. Um, you know, the Bible says that you reap what you sow, and we didn't want to find ourselves in a place where we were making disciples by accident, right? Where they just popped up like weeds by themselves. Oh, there's one. Oh, there's one. No, we wanted to intentionally position ourselves and get involved to the point of engaging in ways that helped people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Because making disciples by accident wasn't going to fly. And to be honest, 
although the preaching of God's word is, is, is a part of discipleship, it doesn't by itself make disciples. There are many other elements that are involved in it, and we'll get into some of that. But as we were trying to figure out, okay, what is it going to look like for us to be intentional in this? What does intentional discipleship look like for us? We didn't want to micromanage the process, and we didn't want to micromanage the experience, but we did want to provide some guidance, and we did want to provide a framework for it. Because discipleship is not a program, and it's not a curriculum to complete. It's a process. It's a lifelong journey. It's a way of life for the rest of your life. I don't mean that in a weird cult way or mob, mafia way, but if we are, a, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, it's just something that we do for as long as we're here on this earth. So we developed an integrated approach that put, and, and we, to discipleship, and we, we put a lot of thought and prayer into that, and we um, were uh, fortunate enough and privileged enough to have some uh, well-known Christian leaders speak into the process and to help us with it. And I don't say that to boast, but uh, I, I do say that because we, I want you to know that we believe in it. This isn't just busy work that the pastor is trying to get you to do. We actually believe in this. And we believe that people that engage in it and, and engage in it in the way that it was intended will grow spiritually. You know, the, the, this discipleship deficit that the Barna study that I referenced earlier revealed, it may be one of the, the, the number one thing pastors and, uh, and, and churches are looking for. When I travel and I go to church conferences and whatever, and someone said to me tonight, I don't even know what a pastor's conference is. I don't even know what that looks like. Yeah, they're kind of weird sometimes, to be honest. But that's okay. But one of the things that's talk, that people talk about all the time, and I hear discussed a lot, is how do we make disciples? We're trying to find out how to make disciples. We're trying to like, hey, what's your discipleship approach? What are you guys doing to make disciples? It's, 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 it's talked about a lot. And so as it relates to some of, of what we're doing here, maybe the best and most surprising aspect is that what we're doing, there's nothing really creative about it. There's nothing, nothing creative about what we're doing because it just starts with the Bible. And I want to get into this a little bit because this is a major aspect of who we are as a church and what we're involved in. But it starts with the Bible, which is the centerpiece of all of our intentional discipleship efforts. It's not very novel, is it? It's not very creative to say the Bible is the centerpiece of our discipleship efforts. It's not creative at all. There's nothing new to it. And I don't mean that in sort of a spiritually arrogant kind of way. Oh, hey, you know, we're so smart, we just figured out how simple it was. I don't mean it to be sound like that, but I, I am trying to convey the simplicity of how sometimes we overthink this stuff and the opportunity to be able to engage people is right there in front of us if we have a Bible. And so that's what we use to, to steer us and to drive all of these efforts. It's a centerpiece because it reveals God to us and how we can have a relationship with him. And it's through God's words, through the Bible, that we know who he is and how he's calling us to know him, to love him, and to follow him. In one of the uh, largest research projects ever done on church health, it was found that the number one correlative factor to all other factors for discipleship was people consistently engaged in the word of God. The foundation for any discipleship strategy, this was part of their findings, that the foundation for any discipleship strategy has to be the Bible and the implementation has to involve people studying scripture personally and with others. 
And if you're involved and engaged with us and participating in our discipleship approach, that describes that pretty well. And so what we're trying to do is seek to blend the benefits of personal Bible reading, which becomes the basis of our Sunday talks, and then we can gather in our discipleship groups that are no bigger than four people and focus on living out and applying in real life what we're learning through our reading and through the preached word. So the Bible reading plan, uh, what we like about this, is it involves our own commitment to the process and the, and the personal time we spend in God's word where God has an opportunity, we're sort of taking time in our day to give God the opportunity to minister to us and to speak to our hearts. And then we have our Sunday talks. This is where the whole church comes together as the body of Christ assembled together as one, as the members of the body coming, coming together to sit under the teaching and the preaching of the word of God that God may, by his Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. There's this progressive and integrated nature of this approach because if you, if you understand what's going on here and what we're encouraging people to participate in is that we believe that reading the Bible is good. But reading the Bible and then pairing that with our Sunday talks, because it's based on the same passage, that's better. And then reading the Bible, pairing it with Sunday talks, and working out the application with others is best. We're sort of covering the board there, the personal commitment that's involved in spending time with Jesus and his word, gathering together with other believers to follow Jesus, to hear the word taught, and then gathering with other people in sort of a micro-community to work out the implications of these things for our lives. Not so that we can gain greater theology, and learn more information about God so that we can understand what God is calling us to and what our relationship with him is to look like. And so this is where our discipleship groups come in. It involves others. It protects us from isolation, kills individualism, and challenges our consumeristic tendencies. These are gender-specific sort of micro-communities of people that come together on a weekly basis it's made up of four people, I already mentioned that, and they meet to discuss and apply what God is teaching them through his word. And so some people have asked, why only four people? What's the big deal with four people? That seems like such a random number. And it's because in keeping it small, everyone has the chance to fully participate. Because you don't have 12 people to discuss it with, or 30 people, or whoever the group may be. In a small group of up to four people, everyone gets a chance to fully participate. It also doesn't marginalize introverts, which is something that we've always tried to accommodate. We always try to make sure that people that naturally sort of disengage don't stay disengaged. We wanna give them an opportunity to engage. And also in keeping it small, it's easier to, to, to schedule those times or even reschedule those meeting times. There's times where that happens within my discipleship groups. Like, hey, you know, I can't make it tonight. There's, you know, do you guys mind if we just meet tomorrow morning instead or tomorrow night instead or whatever it might be? And because there's only a, a few people, it's like, yeah, yeah, sure, we could probably do that. So practically, it's just helpful. Also, we keep them small because then that way it doesn't take all night because if everyone's fully engaging and you have 15 people who want to share their deepest, darkest secrets and, 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 and really fully engage, it's going to take all night long. And then also, we keep it small because we can all fit around a Starbucks table as an added bonus, <laughs> right? Where was I? Last week, I was in a conversation and the conversation turned to a meeting I have to have and then we're like, okay, well, let's just, let's just do it at such and such a place. It's like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. There's going to be too many people. We can't do it there. So it's practically, it just, it just makes sense. But here's something that we have to remember. As much as you hear me saying, let's make disciples together and let's in, get involved in this intentional effort together, here's what we have to be crystal clear on. 
Disciples are made the way they've always been made, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our efforts. But we are called to participate. God is saying, I'm going to make disciples. Disciples are made by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I want you to be involved in it. And more than want you, I'm calling you and I'm commissioning you to be intentional in this process. And so this is our attempt to normalize and create a culture of ongoing discipleship here at Collective Church. Now, obviously, discipleship can involve more than this, but it cannot be less. And we designed it this way because this is how disciples are made. It's never going to happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's never going to happen without our willing participation. It's never going to happen without the Word of God and actually applying it to our lives. And it's never going to happen. Disciples will never be made without the involvement of other people. That's just the way it works. I like how one pastor described discipleship. He said, Discipleship is gospel-driven, word-saturated, intentional, one-anothering. I love that, one-anothering. It is men and women regularly teaching one another to obey what Jesus commanded. Now, there's sometimes we, we, we sort of create these excuses or obstacles, and maybe they're not excuses, maybe they're honest questions and, and honest objections. But sometimes we think, you know, well, you know, I look around the room on Sundays or I look around at our neighborhood dinners or I sort of look around the collective church community and I can't find an older person to disciple me. And where was I? Oh, last week, our guest speaker afterwards says, so do you guys have a lot of college students? <laughs> we, our church tends to be a little bit younger. It does. But I can't believe that God's, um, God's design of the church and his design for discipleship and his desire for people to come into a relationship with him is dependent upon the availability of older, more experienced people to be investing in younger, less experienced people. I don't believe that's the case. I think in scripture, we are told that the older has a responsibility to the younger, but I don't believe that discipleship can't happen if there's no older people in the room or no older people in our church community. When we look at what God has, has called us to do, he told his, his followers, he told um, um, his disciples, his, those that were his, to make disciples of others. It wasn't just make, find someone younger and do it. It's like, no, disciples make disciples that make disciples. That's what discipleship is. So if we look around the room and we think, man, I don't see any older people and I don't know who can invest in me, that's kind of creeping towards a consumeristic mindset, right? Who can invest in me? But if we, what if we shifted our mindset and it's like, wait, I can look around the room and see who I can invest in. And if everybody has that same mindset and looking around, who can I invest in? It becomes this intentional one, one anothering. It becomes this mutual discipleship that, that can be so healthy and so beautiful within a church community. And so if you look around the room and you can't find an older person to disciple you and that's a hang-up for you, maybe discipleship is not what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for a mentor, which is a completely different thing. Or maybe you're looking for a spiritual father, which is also a different thing. But as it relates to discipleship, we can disciple one another if we are followers of Jesus. Another objection 
is I'm not Christ-like enough to disciple others. I'm not mature enough in my spiritual walk with God, so I can't possibly disciple others. If that's you and you think that, let me set you free right now. Let me set you free from that. We do not, and track with me here, and don't throw things at me, but we do not make disciples, and we are not called to make disciples like Jesus did. We're supposed to make disciples like his disciples did. Because Jesus was the ultimate disciple maker. We are not. Jesus said, follow me. And we're saying, follow him. So we don't make disciples like Jesus made disciples. We make disciples like his disciples did. The first followers of Jesus were flawed and imperfect. Scripture records that beautifully for us. Because they, you know, we look at his first followers like, man, what a bunch of idiots, right? We know that. They were flawed and imperfect, just like we are. They were commissioned to make more disciples, just like we are. And they, they called people to follow Jesus, not themselves, just like we do. That means it's for all of us. Everyone has a part to play. I've had people that were new believers in a discipling, a mutual discipling relationship with me. And on paper, you might think that, that seems wrong or imbalanced, new believer discipling a pastor. And the other way around is proper, right? The pastor is supposed to disciple the new believer, and I did because it was mutual. But the new believers I've been in dis- mutual discipleship relationships with didn't have, I-, I didn't feel ripped off in any way. They had the power of God working in their lives. They had the spirit of God indwelling them and God was using them with the skills, gifts, and abilities super, supernatural and natural in their lives to be a blessing to me, to help me focus on Jesus and how to live for Jesus in the way that my heart deep down actually wants to. They were able to do that. So discipleship is for all of us. We don't need to attain some level where we cross that line of spiritual maturity. Now I'm prepared to disciple people. Now I'm prepared to point people to Jesus. Throughout scripture, we see plenty of examples of people that come to know Jesus and they immediately go out sharing the gospel with people because they had something to say because Jesus had done a work in their lives. There was no you know, pause period or waiting period for them to first go to seminary and figure it all out, right? And learn about biblical theology and systematic theology and all of that. No, God can use all of us in the process of making disciples. That's what he wants to do. So how can we get mo- the most out of this? What, what does it look like for this to be a, a really positive experience where we are growing in our relationship with Jesus? Especially as the way, in the way that we've tried to encourage these efforts, we would say, I, I would want to encourage you to commit to the process and to commit to the people that you are participating in this with. And a few things to watch out for. Because we are relational human beings, sometimes we can position friendship over discipleship. And that's a mistake. Because bro time is not discipleship. Bro time is bro time. Now, sometimes those worlds blend, and a discipling relationship should be interpersonal. It should be relational. But sometimes we lose track of what we're doing. And there's been times where in my own discipleship group, uh, and some of you are in the room, where it's like, we need to like time out. We're just enjoying one another too much. And we're actually not focused on spurring one another on towards love and good deeds like Hebrews chapter 10 talks about. We're not really being intentional of helping one another to know, love, and live for Jesus. 
we're enjoying one another's company, we're building friendships and we're building relationships, and those are all good things, obviously. But if that's our goal and if that's our objective, guess what falls by the wayside? Intentional discipleship. And it might not happen. Now it might. Now because discipleship should ultimately be interpersonal and relational and all that, friendships may form, and that is awesome. But I've been in discipling relationships with people that I didn't even know until the first time we got together. And that didn't interrupt anything. That didn't get in the way of us being able to look into the word together for me to be transparent and open and vulnerable and authentic and say, here's my struggle. And then being able to speak into that and encourage me in the ways of the Lord. We don't see that get in the way of Apollos uh, being discipled by uh, Priscilla and Aquila. It's like, well, we don't really know this guy. He just kind of rolled into town. We heard him say some things that were kind of off, but you know, no big deal. They pulled him aside. And they were relational with him, they loved him, and they ministered to him and discipled him. But sometimes we can confuse the two. And our desire for friendship interferes with participating in discipleship. Discipleship cannot be reduced to something that only happens among friends. And we've seen that, where it's like, well, hey, are you involved in discipling anyone? Well, no, I don't really know anybody. Or, you know, I really wanted to be in a discipling relationship with this person because he's a buddy of mine, but, you know, he was too busy or wasn't interested, and so, like, I'm not. I would suggest let's flip that around. Let's encourage, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, let's be so zealous about helping people to love Jesus and to live for Jesus that we're letting that drive our relationships with one another and allowing that to form friendships. And the desire for friendships is good, obviously. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but I am trying to position it and orient it in its right place as it relates to discipleship. We have to be careful to not elevate friendship over discipleship when that's the reason why we're getting together. And I, we've done that in our group. We've called time out and we said, hey, we need to refocus. Because if we're just gonna hang out and, and you know, have a beer together, let's just go do that. And let's not call it discipleship. And if we need more time to do that, let's go do that more, and, but also carve out and protect these times where we can help one another. And there's times where I've said to my group, I need your help. I really need you to speak into my life. I wanna know what God is speaking to your heart about as you've been spending time in his word. I wanna know how God has been speaking to your heart through the preaching of the word. I wanna know what's going on with you because that will help me because your relationship with Jesus can be a blessing to me and can spur on my relationship with him. So I need that. So let's commit to one another. Well, in that case, let's recommit to one another and let's recommit to this process to discipling one another so that we could grow in our relationship with Jesus. I hope, you, I hope that's being communicated clearly. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say as it relates to those two things, discipleship and friendship. But if you do find that in your, in your discipleship group, there is more emphasis on friendship than discipleship, I would say sit down and have a chat and just talk about and reorient about what are our objectives? What are we trying to do? What do we want to accomplish with this? Why, why are we getting together every week? and sort of reconnect with your purpose in that. And I would caution, if you're, if you're in a discipleship group, like, yeah, yeah, I get it, Lorenzo, I've heard this before, I know about you know, this integrated approach about reading the Bible and you know, the Sunday talks and about the, you know, gathering together in a discipleship group, so yeah, yeah, I get it, I do it, I'm doing all that. But sometimes we just kind of phone it in, right? And sometimes we get complacent and we're just going through the motions. Please don't go through the motions. You don't even need that in your life. If you're just going through the motions, you don't even need that. No one is asking you to do that. We don't want you to do that, and Jesus isn't calling you to do that. But if you need help, 
in sort of recommitting to this, reorienting this, uh, understanding this in greater ways, we're here to help you. A while back, we started offering discipleship group support just for, to be able to meet with discipleship groups to say, how can we help you get the most of this experience? Because we're deeply committed to seeing people grow in their relationship with Jesus. And then, you know, things slowed, quite honestly, things slowed down quite a bit when Pastor Casey went on sabbatical. But we're trying to, you know, renew our efforts and ramp up our efforts with that again. And I know I'm meeting with some of you in the coming weeks um, for this. But we want you to know that we're here to help. That also includes if you're here and you, you, you want to be involved in a discipling relationship within, within our integrated approach and what we're trying to do. You're like, I, I don't really don't know where to start. I'm, we're here to help you with that. Let's get you in and let's, get, let's help you find out who you can connect with. We try to be careful because we don't want to arrange marriage. You know, we don't want to sort of arrange marriages all over the place and force people together because and, 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 and we don't believe that the long-term um, fruit from that is, is good. It's, it's much more effective when people can naturally, you know, kind of grow and click, click together and, and enter into that relationship. But we'll help you in any way we possibly can. We'd love to be able to do that. We want, to, we want part, people to participate in this because it will benefit them, it will connect them, and it's what God is calling them to do. And so if you're not engaged in discipleship, you can start. You can absolutely start. Ask around. Maybe it's at a neighborhood dinner that you can meet up with people. And you know, ask around, like, hey, you know, are you in a discipleship group? Can I join your group? And by the way, the, if someone ever asks you to join your discipleship group and participate in that, your answer is always yes. At the very least, it's always yes, kind of. Because there might be some situations where it might not be appropriate to involve an extra person into your group because maybe there's some major things going down inside your discipleship group or whatever. But the kind of piece is, if not with us, let me help you find someone that you can be in a relationship, in this discipling relationship with. Let's be so committed, let's be so zealous to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus that we're creating pathways for them to enter into these relationships and not just saying, no, sorry, the inn is full, you know, no vacancy. Nope, sorry, and that person walks off. Okay, fine, I guess nobody wants me. But the other thing too is like, if you're having difficulty doing that, start one of your own. Connect with people that you already know and say, hey, let's do this. There's no approval process where I've got to approve who's creating new discipleship groups. There's no approval process in that at all. And so you're free to start your own with people that um, you're in community with where you want to commit to this process together in. So you can start if you're not already and if you are participating in discipleship, I would encourage you, let's take some of these things to heart. Let's renew our commitment to this process, to one another, and to seeing transformation take place. Jesus calls us to follow him as his disciple. And, and maybe you don't even, and, 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 you know, even though Jesus calls us to follow him as his follower and his disciple, maybe that's not who you think you are. Maybe you've never put yourself in that place. Maybe you don't consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't consider yourself a follower of him. But what we're calling you to and what ultimately Jesus is calling you to is to place your faith in him because his plan uh, for you is to bring you into relationship with him and into a community of people. And it's a community of people that because we are seeking to love one another, and, and be intentional about discipling one another, you're not going to be alone. You're going to be with people who will walk this journey with you. You will not be by yourself. You'll find people that love you and that care for you and want to help you in any way they can. As it relates to Apollos, we see that um, following Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus is not just about repentance. 
and our good intentions to live right. We come into a relationship with God and have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ and the gift of his death on our behalf. That's what it's about. We don't want to miss it in the way that Apollos was missing it. It's not just repentance. It's about the full uh, the, the full gospel that's been laid out for us, that Jesus made a way for us to have a relationship with him. And there's nothing that we have to do to create it. And there's nothing that we have to do to improve upon it. All we have to do and rely, is rely on what he has already done for us. Jesus calls us to follow him because he loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us and he has plans for us that will not be realized outside of a relationship with him. And if we choose to, to enter into a relationship with him by placing our faith in him and recognizing his plan for us and his call to us to follow him, where we just let go our attempts to be good, where we just let go of our desires to kind of make the best decisions and be a good person and all of that, if we just sort of let go and, and try to do things God's way, this is something where we can enter into this relationship with God. This is the relationship that he's calling us to. And the reality is we will never forget it. And we will never, actually I was trying to say, we will probably never forget it, but I was trying to say we'll never regret it. <laughs> It'll be the best thing you ever did. And it will be a day that you look back upon and you'll say to yourself, that's the day that Jesus changed me. And the process won't be done. There's this theological thing called sanctification. There's this lifelong process of becoming more like Christ. But that will be the turning point in your life where the Holy Spirit is now working your life to work out transformation. And it's a beautiful thing. There is a beautiful work that God wants to do in our lives. And all we have to do is give him an opportunity to do that. Let's pray.